This morning we've made our way to the fifth letter that Jesus has instructed the Apostle John to write from his exile on the island of Patmos. This letter is written to the church in Sardis. As we look at this and we consider uh, what is being conveyed not only to the church in the first century and what would be important for them to take away from this, our perspective today is not looking just at one letter, but at really at all seven of these letters at one time that we might glean from it. What is Christ's expectation for the people of God assembling together in a local and autonomous body that we call a church? What is Christ's expectation for us this morning? We have to be careful how quickly we jump there, but certainly that should be in the back of our mind as we try to understand the particular circumstances that these various churches were facing, the condemnation or the critique that Christ would offer to the church, and then in practical terms, what should we be doing? As we come to the church in Sardis, we find perhaps what is one of the strongest words of condemnation that Christ has to offer. Now that's really saying something, considering just where we've come from. We've looked at the church in Ephesus that had lost their first love, this church that was doing all of the things that a church should do, but they had no love, and so they had drifted away. Perhaps that means even becoming so focused on the uh, discernment ministries of the church that they did not have compassion for the people that needed to hear the word of God. We've looked at the church in Smyrna that was commended. The only church so far not to receive condemnation from Christ was the church that Christ said, keep doing what you're doing and know it's not going to last that long because you're about to be thrown in prison. You're about to be killed. To the church in Pergamum, Christ warned them against how they had compromised with the world that they had lived in. To the church in Thyatira, a very similar word of warning, that they had not only allowed themselves to be compromised, but they had condemned themselves by embracing teaching that came from false teachers. What about this church in Sardis? Let's look at our text and see what we find. Before we do that, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles along with me to the book of John's Revelation, chapter 3, and we'll read through the first, um, the first six verses. And I'll warn you, I've misplaced my preaching Bible. That's not a special term. Preachers don't have special Bibles. I have a Bible that I bought specifically for preaching because it lays flat. And it has big letters that I can read from a standing position. Um, and normally I read from the English Standard Version. This morning I'll be reading from the NIV because that's the Bible that I grabbed. So with your Bibles open along with me, let's pray and ask God to give us understanding of the text. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word and I thank you for uh, the accessibility of it, Lord. I thank you that your word is not so far away from us that we cannot read it and understand it, God, that you've made it accessible to us, and that, God, we come to you acknowledging that even though it is accessible to us, it is impossible to understand without your Spirit guiding us into that truth. And so, Lord, I ask that you would grant us understanding this morning as you open the eyes of our heart that we might be able to behold the wondrous truth 
found in your law. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not spoiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We begin by realizing that this church is, again, a real church located in a real place that existed at a real point in time in history. This isn't just some fanciful fictional narrative that tells us something, but this is a particular church that John was writing to. The city of Sardis was located some 30 miles southeast of Thyatira. If you wanted to take the time to look that up in a map, you could find where it was located. And Sardis, as a matter of fact, is an interesting place namely because it carried a reputation of being a prominent city, at least in history. See, in the first century, the people that would have been receiving this letter, Sardis was a city that had its glory days far in the past. And there was a reason for that. In fact, it's the same moral failing that Jesus is addressing in the church. And so let me explain that. And, and hopefully, as we continue through this letter, you'll begin to piece together the connection that exists here. See, Sardis, if you can put yourself in the perspective of an ancient people, and you consider what would be important, of course, access to water, of course, uh, some of these common things that civilization has needed throughout all of history, and then some sort of good defense. You know, we give the Swiss a hard time for never participating, but they don't really have to because they're surrounded by mountains. Sardis was the same. Sardis as a city was located on steep cliffs on either side, almost vertical, except for on the southern side of Sardis, there was somewhat of a slope. And in the 5th century BC, Sardis thought themselves so impregnable, so so protected just by geography that they didn't think that they actually had to do any work to defend themselves. It was a city of refuge. This is where people would go if there were conquests taking place. You could go to Sardis and be safe. They were surrounded by these slopes. It would be very difficult to actually bring a military force against them. But what happens when we develop such a sense of security? What happens to us when we develop such a, a sense of self-confidence that we think that we are infallible? Perhaps you've met somebody so arrogant that they don't even entertain the idea that their ideas could be wrong. 
Perhaps you've met someone so confident in themselves that they do not consider even for a moment that their actions could actually be the cause for the problems that they are facing. Perhaps you know somebody with such an attitude of self-confidence that it is impossible to convince them that they are wrong. Do we not develop the same thing when we think that we ourselves are so safe and so secure that there is no financial hardship that could come before us that could cause us to face bankruptcy? When we consider what it means to be protected with all of the great graces that we have in our country, how easy is it for especially younger generations to neglect the sacrifice that made it possible for all of these things to have come to be? That's exactly how Sardis met their demise in the 5th century B.C. This would be almost 640 years before Jesus is having this letter written to a church that has now occupied Sardis. The city became so complacent in defending themselves that a soldier dropped his helmet and wandered down in daylight to retrieve his helmet, giving the opposition those that were trying to lay siege upon the city, all they had to do was watch him climb down the slopes to see the path that they should take to conquer Sardis. They weren't watchful. They didn't care. They thought they were protected. And this one soldier made the journey down the southern slopes and military forces watched him do this. And as they watched, they were also able to observe that that's the path that they're going to take to lay conquest upon Sardis. This didn't happen just once. You'd think if you make a mistake one time, all right, we messed up. But in 200 AD, the same 200 BC, the same thing happened to Sardis. Now, this would somewhat be a significant memory in the citizens that lived there. I think all of us are familiar with the American Revolution. That was about 200 years ago for us. We can easily put ourselves in that position. We can easily think about what caused the American Revolution and how uh, Americans participated in that. That's our recent history, and we can easily recall some of those things. For the people of Sardis receiving this letter in the first century, this would have been their recent history. You see, Sardis at one time was a very prominent city. At one time, it was a glorious city. It was a city where people wanted to go, but now it wasn't important or significant at all. In fact, when the citizens of the Roman Empire were petitioning to have these temples built to honor Caesar, Sardis was putting their name in for the running. But they weren't granted that because they weren't a significant city in the first century. Sardis was a place of wealth and laziness. Early historians recount Sardis was a place of soft people. It was people that only knew how to make money through easy retail. And certainly there is value in that. But the reality is, Our work should not be easy. The goal is not to have easy work. Sardis was known, uh, namely, for a dyed wool that only came from that area. Black wool, actually. It was known for selling this luxurious item. Sardis, in fact, was known for luxury, but not just that. Consider the fact that they had developed 
in their recent history, not make, making the mistake once, but making the mistake twice, of being apathetic. That means not caring. Of being an immoral people. Not only was it a place of luxury, but it was a place of immorality. The combination of easy money and loose moral standards made it a place of pleasure-loving. Even pagans in the Roman Empire condemned Sardis as a place of ill repute. Those are important things to consider as we look at what Jesus is writing to this church. These are the words of Him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Jesus calling back to the names and the imagery that He uh, was represented by John in, in Revelation chapter 1 as the one who holds the seven spirits of God. That is, He who completely and fully holds the Spirit of God that represents it, that sends it, that establishes His church. The one who holds the seven churches. He who is in complete control of His churches. This is the one writing to this church and He says, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive. This is an important thing for a church to think about. Does a church not want to have a reputation of being alive? Some of us want to pretend that a church's reputation doesn't matter at all. It, in fact, does. Even people who are not members of a church have some concept of the people that go there and the way that they worship and the style that is evident there and the priorities that that church's, church has. Churches should have a reputation. They should have a good reputation. They should have a compassionate and loving reputation. They should have an involved reputation. What we find in the church in Sardis is they had a great reputation in their community. They had a good reputation. Vance Havner said, We are not to get the impression that Sardis was a defunct affair with the building a wretch, the members scattered, the pastor ready to resign. It was a busy church with meetings every night, committees galore, wheels within wheels, promotion and publicity, something going on all the time. It had a reputation of being alive, wide awake and going concern. Is that not the kind of reputation we would like our church to have? If you're visiting with us, is that not the kind of reputation that you want your church to have? In fact, isn't it something that if you've ever been in the position where you've been looking for a church that you would like to attend. Now, I'm not an advocate for church shopping because I think it's unbiblical. I think God tells you to identify with his body. And when you identify with his body, you go there. But there is something to be said that when you walk into a church and you feel an atmosphere of complacency and deadness and a lack of zeal... That's not necessarily the place you see yourself being for the next 20 to 30 years, is it? We want our church to have vibrancy, to have life. We want it to be passionate about the ministries that it is involved in. We want it to have zeal. We want it to have a going concern out into the community. But is that it? Is that the end-all, be-all of a healthy church? That it feels like a nice place to be? Does sincerity matter? See, you can have all of these things and they can be worthless. Notice that after saying that this church has a reputation of being alive, Jesus turns and he says, but you are dead. There's not a more somber word that could be used there. 
There's not a more serious condemnation that could be offered. This church has a reputation of being alive, but it is dead. What does that mean? When we talk about salvation, we make the claim that we are born spiritually dead. We get that from Ephesians chapter 2. Born spiritually dead and that through Christ, the Spirit works in our life to open our eyes to the realities of the gospel. That by faith, we respond to that reality. At the moment of confession, we're filled with the Holy Spirit that we're granted new life. Jesus made the claim when speaking with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. How could Jesus say to this church, you are dead? Despite the appearance on the outside, there was no complete work offered. There was no complete work of service. There were no complete deeds because it all lacked sincerity. They had an inoffensive Christianity. What does it mean to have an inoffensive Christianity? I think the world's filled with it today. People who want to present the gospel without presenting depravity. People that want to talk about the atonement without reckoning the grisliness of the cross. People that want to deliver a message without giving it any substance. It is a hollow faith. Loved ones, if we present the gospel message and it is simply that Jesus loves you, He loves you so much He wants to have eternal life with you and all you have to do is say you believe in Him. The people that respond to that message, I cannot guarantee nor can I say with confidence they have been saved. Salvation means nothing unless we also discuss and present that there is an absolute necessity for salvation. We, that means that we must admit that depravity is an issue that requires to be addressed. The reason Jesus had to die for you was because there is nothing that you can do to save yourself. You were born a sinner. You sin because you're a sinner. As a sinner, you cannot run away from the natural desires of the flesh without the power of the Spirit. And you say, well, I have self-control. I can make good decisions sometimes. But can you control your thoughts? Can you control your thoughts into wandering into areas of hate? Can you control your thoughts into wandering into areas of lust? Can you control your thoughts into wandering in directions that hurt the flesh and harm the flesh as much as if you had actually acted upon those thoughts? If you have even thought of such things, you are condemned. You're depraved. And this is why you need a Savior. Because He takes the place that your depravity justly deserves. And in taking that place, He also offers you the Spirit that comes to dwell within you. And through that Spirit, it's actually possible to control your thoughts. It's actually possible to be given a new mind. Paul makes reference to that in Romans 12.1. Let not your mind be conformed to this world, rather be transformed into the image of Christ. Here's the promise that we have. 
that a genuine church with genuine believers, the real deal, people who have heard the gospel, understand depravity, they recognize the grisliness of the cross and why it was necessary. People that have substance behind their message, what do they have before them? Not just a reputation of being alive, but their works are complete. They are sincere. Jesus gives the church this warning. He says, wake up in verse two, wake up. Because this is the issue. You're going along with the motions and the church is not actually responding to what is needed. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete. He gives them practical instructions. Remember, therefore. (coughs) Remember what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. He tells them to be watchful. To be watchful. We don't have watchmen anymore. Imagine the first century living in Sardis, this this place that would have been secure from all of these forces opposing them. Do you think it would have been an important job? Do you think that even they had the military advantage? They had the high ground. If they would have known that these people were taking seizure of them at night, if the watchman would have been ready, if he would have been looking after what was taking place, if, if like the churches in Pragamum and Thyatira, if they would have been aware that there was false doctrine re- creeping into the church, do you think that they could have corrected it? The church is no different. We have the military high ground. We have the high ground because we have the clear sight of Christ. We have the power. We have, the, 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 we have everything that we need because our power is in Christ. He's able to protect us from this. But if we are not watchful, then we become lazy. We become listless. Our religious acts carry no meaning. They carry no substance because we simply go through the motion. This is exactly how Sardis was conquered in history, and this is exactly how the church had arrived at its position. Today, the church represented in Sardis. I think it's a marvel that God is able to take a church and to put it in a place that is known even by pagans of having a bad reputation, that he's able to establish this church. But he says that their works were not found complete. He tells them to be watchful all the more. This brings up, I think, a difficult question. Would we rather be a church that is experiencing no persecution or would we rather be a church that is experiencing persecution? This is the same day and time that the church in Smyrna was told to be ready to face death because of the gospel that they proclaimed. Loved ones looking at church history, and that's 2,000 years of history, The church has been at its strongest when it has clearly defined how a biblical worldview contradicts a worldly worldview. It has been at its strongest. The people have been the most vibrant. In fact, missions have been most successful when we have been able to clearly define these things. I think the worst moment to ever come upon Christ's church was when uh, the emperor of the Roman Empire somewhere in 250 A.D. After, so this is after the life of Christ around 250 A.D. made Christianity the national religion of Rome. 
And you'd say, what do you mean that's the worst thing that happened for the church? The church exploded. It was bigger than ever. It was bigger than ever in a corporate sense, but in reality, people were going there and worshiping like pagans. This is the kind of religion that we see in our world today where people want to go to church and live their life however they want to live it. They want to go to work and they want to be the same person. They want religion without transformation. They want to feel safe without realizing that they need a Savior. Jesus asks for perfect works. That means to be motivated. That means to have in our hearts the passion for the love of God that we are not afraid of the way that a biblical worldview contradicts the way that the world actually conducts itself. Let me give you one illustration, and I'm, I'm getting in troubled water here, so bear with me, and I'll be sure to move away from it as quickly as possible. The Pew Research Center recently conducted a survey on the opinions of Christians on whether or not abortion should be legal. 68% of Baptists said that it should be legal. 68% said that it should. I'm not going to make a political statement about that. But what I will do is make a biblical statement about that. The Bible teaches us that life begins at the moment of fertilization. The Bible teaches us that each human is born a unique image bearer of the divine. 68% of people say that murder is acceptable under particular circumstances. Is the church watchful? Now, I bring that up, and I'm sure somebody out in the audience, someone in the congregation, perhaps one of our visitors is thinking, why are you even bringing this up? Roe has been repealed, and it's no longer an issue. Loved ones, wake up. There are more abortions today than there were pre-Roe. Chemical abortions taking place. People are doing this at home. And it's acceptable. How are we watchful? Are we motivated by the gospel, by a biblical worldview? Or are we simply going through the motions? The practical instruction that Jesus gives us is first to remember. This is the part of waking up. This is what we need to hear. And I believe that this is even more important the longer that you have been a Christian, the longer that you have been a member of Christ's church, and that the longer that you've been a part of the family, you need to hear this. Wake up. Remember what it was when you were first saved. Remember what it was when you were first saved. Remember, go all the way back in your memory and remember what it meant when you realized what it meant to be depraved, what it meant to be justly condemned in the eyes of God because of who you are. 
Stop making this an issue of the world and us, the righteous. And remember what it meant in those first moments to realize that God loves you so much that He paid the penalty of sin, that He came to you and pursued you and made you a son or daughter of the Most High. Remember what it meant. Hold fast to that memory because that's the motivation that will make the church effective not only in the world, but in the communities that we serve in. Hold fast to it and repent. Peter says, make sure the calling of your election. Hold fast to your salvation. Do not let your mind be shaped by the world around you, but dive into the Bible. Understand these things from a biblical perspective. And listen, it is not a substitute. I use the illustration of the abortion issue. It is not a substitute to use the same arguments that conservatives use against abortion because they are just as wrong as the liberals. You must develop a biblical case for the things that you believe. This is what it means to hold fast to your beliefs. This is what it means to hold fast to those things that you stand for. Hold fast to what the Bible says. Remember what it means the first time you realize that the book that we are holding in our hands this morning, that this is not just any book that we can pull off of a shelf, but it is a book that has been preserved longer than any other book in all of human history. It is a book that has been sustained through faithful translators and made available to you in your modern tongue. It is a book that has been breathed out by God. They aren't the opinions of man, but they are authoritative for all things pertaining not just to faith, but also to life. Hold fast to that profession. Remember where you came from and go back to the book. Repent. The Christians need to hear this more than anyone else. Repent and keep on with repenting every day, every opportunity that you have. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, if I were to summarize it, the point, and I recommend that book to all of you, even though I don't agree with C.S. Lewis on everything. Mere Christianity is a fantastic book. He makes the case that our Christian maturity will only go so far as we realize we have been forgiven. If we do not remember that we had been forgiven, then our maturity will flatline. To repent as a Christian, as one that has already been redeemed, as one that has already experienced God's grace, means to remember where we came from and to pray for God's forgiveness in the daily moments of our life. To pursue Him with such vigor that He is on the foremost of our mind, that as we make decisions at work, as we go through our day at school, we remember that it is God that is with us. Jesus tells the church to remember, hold fast, and repent. And if they do not, he offers a word of judgment. Here in verse 3, he says, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. He's already 
instilled in this letter from the very beginning that he is the one that holds the seven spirits of God, that he is the one that holds the seven churches of God, that he is the one that holds all things in his control and completeness in contrast with the incomplete works of the people that he is writing to. And here he says, I will come like a thief. The reason we should be watchful is not just for false doctrines that could come and corrupt the church. The reason we should be watchful is for the listlessness that can come from ourselves. The tired fatigue that makes church something that we do rather than something that we are. Jesus says, I will come. We must remember that he is the one that is prepared to judge. He says, I will come like a thief. Just like the invaders that had conquered Sardis in the 5th century B.C. and the 2nd century B.C. And now in the 1st century A.D., the way that the church had become lazy in their own worship. He says, I will come like a thief. You will not know at what time I will come to you. This judgment invoke some sort of, uh, I think, fear when I think about the perpetuity or the preservation of the saints. As a church, we believe that once you are saved, because that is a work of God, there is nothing that you could ever do to lose that salvation. Let me just ask, and I believe that, but there's more to it than that. There's more to our salvation being a secure element than we possibly let off by sticking to to truth, truisms, and just saying once saved, always saved. Peter says, make make sure the calling of your election. How do you know you're saved? You have security if you've been saved. That's absolutely true. But how do you know you've been saved? If you wander without conviction, if your life without repentance causes you no pain, if it does not stir something within your gut that draws you closer to God, then why are you not questioning your salvation? The promise of once saved, always saved does not exist for someone that was never saved. If we become lazy in our faithfulness to God, is there security in our salvation? Why would Jesus say, I will come to you like a thief and you will not know at what time I come to you? These are the words of Christ spoken to the church. What do they possibly mean? You see, it's a more complicated issue than we give it credit for. Salvation is certainly secure, but if we use that as an act of liberty that allows us to do whatever we want, rather than experiencing the Lordship of Christ in our life, then we're really saying the wrong thing. We should be saying, how do I know that I am saved, that I am a people of God, that my name was written in the book of life before the foundation of the world? I will come to you like a thief. Christ says he will come and judge the world in this way. If Christ came today, would there be fear or joy in your heart? If today were the day, and if in the middle of the sermon, the roof of this church were lifted up and Christ peered down upon us, 
What does our worship look like? Is it a response of fear? Would we hide under the pews like Adam did in the garden? Or would we have confidence that having repented of our sin, that we were made right with our Savior, that we could look Him in the face, that we could experience His glory, that we could all finally experience the promise of the gospel to be in His presence forever? Christ's return is imminent. It could happen at any time. No one knows the day or the hour. But we live like we've got time to wait. God is not asking you to wait to be a faithful witness in the community that you live in. He is not asking you to wait to pursue with zeal your personal maturity and your walk with God. He's asking you to do that now. So that in that moment, whenever it may come, you will be ready. He says in verse 4, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He offers a promise that even in a church that had become listless, a church that was apathetic, a church that had lost their initial zeal, that needed to be told to remember, that needed to repent, that there were some who were faithful among that congregation. They had not soiled their clothes. And remember, Sardis was known for their black wool. And so here we have these people are being compared with the white garment of purity, of, of righteousness. They will be dressed with Christ in white. This image has that they did not walk among the world, that they would soil their clothes, but that they would be presented to Christ pure and ready. He says, I will never blot out his name from the book of life. This is in verse five. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. I've got a sermon I've never preached. It's titled, There Are No Erasers in Heaven. I can't wait to preach it. Those who have their name written in the Lamb's Book of Life never have to worry about having their name blotted out. He preserves them, and these are the same people who are faithful. These are the same people who are the few in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. All throughout Jewish history, as we look at the Old Testament, we find this picture of this faithful remnant that persevered through hardship, through compromise, through all of these various elements that led people astray. Even Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, is recounted as one of these faithful remnants of the Jewish people at the time that Christ came to dwell among man in the flesh. Church, some 2,000 years later, I believe, has experienced just as much corruption as Jesus was writing about in the first century. I believe that there are even some that go by the title of church among us that do not deserve the title of being a church of God because they have not only corrupted themselves but condemned themselves. And I do not think myself... so wise or so biblically astute that I think that I myself couldn't be a part of that. My greater fear is for a church that has forgotten why they are still on earth. 
There is hope and glory in heaven. Everything that my heart desires is in heaven. The truth is, I'm not afraid of dying. I have two little children. I have a life insurance policy. It's not a substantial life insurance policy. Michelle will probably have to go back to work after 10 or 15 years, especially with um, how inflation's going. But even then, I'm not afraid. A lot of people, their reason for living is simply because people depend on them. Simply because people depend on them. But I trust my Savior. We sang, God is good, and I believe that. But if I really believe that, isn't there some sort of disconnect in in how engaged I I hopefully am in the world? Isn't there some disconnect in how zealous I am for the kingdom of God? I, I pray that those are words that we could use to describe me. No. Because I believe that God has left me in this world for a reason. He's left all of us here for a reason. Part of it is because we have neighbors, friends, family members that are not saved. Part of it is because we go to church even with people that have made professions of faith that have neglected the gospel and neglected substance. Part of the reason is because we have work to do. There are a few in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes, but they are still told, wake up. Waiting for us is this promise of being dressed in white garments, presented righteous and pure before Christ, being worthy, being those who overcome, those who are dressed in white, whose names are preserved in the Lamb's book of life. Those who acknowledge Christ, and and this is the real joy. I I think sometimes we put so much emphasis on, on acknowledging Christ that we forget it doesn't matter if we acknowledge Christ. What matters is whether He acknowledges us. Christ says, I will acknowledge His name before my Father and His angels. In Greek, the word acknowledge, it could not be stronger. It is is a word that conveys a legal proclamation. It is the kind of word that would be associated with not just adoption, but of oneness. Christ says, I will acknowledge His name before my Father and His angels. It does not matter whether you recognize Christ. It matters whether He recognizes you. And if He recognizes you before His Father, then there is no fear in judgment, there is no fear in life, there is no fear in death. To die is gain and to live is Christ. I put that in the reverse order. But to to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the promise that awaits the faithful Christian. Often because of complacency. We forget the promise that awaits us. There were a few good among the bad in Sardis, and and there always are. 
This is the remnant. This is where the church revitalization begins. This is why revitalization is possible. This is where revival starts. When those who are faithful wake up and they begin to live their life like they did when they were first saved. It should be convicting for the church today to realize that the churches that are most active in planting other churches are new churches. But old churches that have been established haven't had a mission project in years. It should be convicting for us today to recognize that Christians that are more zealous in witnessing to their friends are young Christians rather than Christians that have been in the church for 20 and 30 years. It should be the other way around, but it's not. Why? Because we've fallen asleep. Because we've become complacent. All of these things are evidence of our complacency. Often, because of complacency, this bunch is as much the problem as those who are spiritually dead. Now consider that. Those that are zealous and alive for Christ are oftentimes as much the problem as those that Jesus says are dead. Why? Because those that are spiritually dead in the congregation look to those that are alive, that faithful remnant that have fallen asleep, and they allow themselves to become so discouraged. Listen to me. Those saints... I've put all of this backwards. Let let me try to clarify this. Among all churches, there will be a combination of faithful, genuine believers and false converts with a false sense of security. Every church has that. There's not a church on earth that doesn't have that. Those faithful believers... That faithful remnant can become as much a part of the problem and the apathy of the church as the false converts. Why? Because they look out into the congregation. They look out into the people that they are serving alongside. They look out to the rest of the church and they allow themselves to become so discouraged that they isolate themselves that they think that they are the only ones that care. They allow themselves to look out into a world that desperately needs Christ, and they recognize their own futility, their own inability to do anything by themselves, and they are frustrated with the people that are not living for Christ, and so they simply give up. And they become just as apathetic as those that were not saved to begin with. The reason for Christ's promise at the end of this letter, and especially his final word in verse 6, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church, is simply so that those who are saved and called by God would live according to his principles and promises. That they would experience all of these blessings. Jesus has died for the sins of the whole world. He has has shed His blood. He has ascended to majesty and glory. He holds all things in control. Salvation means that He has accepted you. But do we live like those who are accepted? I think what's more common is we, we see people who live as those that have been ostracized and marginalized and conceal their actual passion for Christ as they live in a world that does not claim Him to be Lord. These issues were... This is what blows my mind as I look at a passage like this. This was the first century. 
This is less than 100 years after Jesus died. The Apostle John saw it with his own eyes. And this is the kind of complacency that could take place in the church after, in that short time. I love visiting with our sister churches, their pastors and their members. I love visiting and helping mission churches. Um, we, used to, we used to, every once in a while, when there was a mission church nearby, we would go and we called it Fishers of Men and we had name tags. And The name tag was only there so that people didn't get scared when you went and knocked on their door and told them about this new church that was starting to take shape. I've always been so surprised by how these young Christians were so eager to share their faith with their friends. Not because it's something that we don't read about in the Bible, but because those who are supposed to have been maturing all this time, those who are supposed to be growing deeper in their understanding of who God is, those who are supposed to be closer to God than those who do not yet understand all of these mysteries, aren't doing it. Remember where you first started. Hold fast to not just the promises of God, but the veracity of His Word. And repent. Repent faithfully. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that it moves in our heart. Not just the way that it moves in our heart, God, but the way that it stirs our mind and it causes us to, be, um, to, to look towards you and to be directed towards you. God, it is so easy to think of ourselves on an island and to forget what you have given us in the church. Help us, Lord, as we worship you, to be prepared to joyfully meet you. To live for your word with such authenticity that our opinions are shaped by your word. Help the church, Lord. To love you with everything that we have. Because all that we have is from you. In Jesus' name I pray.